Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and I have not missed a day of work in over five consecutive semesters. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I teach research methods to pre-service teachers. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking Double Shift Brewing Surreal Skies Saison. I like that glug glug sound of a growler. It lives up to its dark name and it's very aromatic. It is very aromatic. I don't know if I'm smelling... I don't know what I'm smelling. Oranges and pine trees. Yeah, that sounds right. Which uh, we had to, we actually had to look up saison before we started taping to make sure that we understood what the beer was that we were drinking, and it was listed as being citrusy. Uh, and what was it? I don't know. I didn't read that. I was just concentrating on the name <laughs> so that I could pronounce it right. Yeah, because we are pretty averse to pronouncing things wrong on this show, aren't we? <laughs> uh, so for our first segment, we're excited to have Dr. Heidi Hallman joining us, and uh, she she comes uh, with quite a, uh, a reputation here in the education community. You are an associate professor of English education uh, at KU. Uh, you publish a number of papers. You've authored several books, including Millennial Teachers, Learning to Teach in Uncertain Times, which was published just this last year. You've got uh, a number of degrees, all of which come from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, so clearly you, uh, you have some connection and some roots uh, up north of us uh, quite a ways. And uh, we're excited because you are actually the author of the book and the article that we're going to be discussing in this first segment. Uh, we read the article, How English Language Arts Teachers Are Prepared for 21st Century Classrooms, Results of a National Study. But then you also published a book on this same subject recently. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's correct. And thank you um, both Michael and Lawrence for hosting uh, me on the show today. And um, we this work really started about five or six years ago. So um, I feel like I've been saturated with thinking about how English teaching has changed over the past, you know, number of years. So I'm excited to talk to you today. What exactly did you look at as far as like data collected or methods? How did you go about trying to answer that question? Well, this study um, was done by five English teacher educators and researchers, and we were at five different institutions. And um, we always thought about this book that came out in the mid-1990s called How English Teachers Are Taught by Peter Smagorinsky and Melissa Whiting. And that is really the last book that talked about how English teachers are prepared in the United States. And um, Dr. Smagorinsky often jokes that 20 years ago, everything was collected via snail mail. He asked people to send him their syllabus for their class, and he had like 96 syllabi come in, and that was the data collection. The, a, lot of the, a lot of the programs identified standards and standard alignment and working with uh, expectations as being a high priority, but that wasn't necessarily, that didn't uh, necessarily match the way I would have expected it to with mm-hmm. their their actual methods, like the actual things that they reported doing. Is that, uh, was I seeing that correctly? I, I think standards, and this may be a difference in English teaching versus other fields. Um, I know, you know, in science education, there's the next generation science standards that seem to have a coherent vision for the field. Uh, English teacher ed doesn't really have that coherence. Um, you might have people who are 
um, we can think of as very traditional and want to teach the canon, want to teach, you know, the great books and want to still adhere to that. And then we have other people who are really polar opposite in terms of what kind of literature they want to teach in their classroom. And I think our field has been hesitant to create kind of a unifying vision. And I think um, in reference to standards, that becomes difficult because standards do create some kind of vision. Um, and there's hesitancy, I think, to adopt that vision in English teaching. Our research would suggest that um, teacher educators should help pre-service teachers who are going to enter the field not only understand how to use standards and be adherent to them in their teaching, but also do that critique and historical work of looking at where did standards come from, why are they good, why are they not so good, and help beginning teachers understand that there's maybe not a right answer. I think that um, teacher educators are often afraid if they give their students standards that the students will uncritically just say, okay, this is the way we teach English and I'm just going to map these on to my lessons and this is the right way. And I think as a field, we understand that it's one way, but it might not be the only way. The disconnect between awareness and application is something that comes up a couple times in this uh, paper. Toward the end, there was a paragraph that was a uh, a little confusing for me, so uh, if you will, I'd like to read that paragraph and ask if you could expand on it for my, my benefit. As prospective teachers experience the disjunction between what we see as awareness of issues and application to classrooms, they may risk essentializing student groups based on factors such as race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. Though not the intention of teacher educators, awareness can become a proxy for understanding. So if you could, for my benefit, talk about what essentializing student groups means and talk more about that proxy of uh, awareness for understanding. Right. Um, so I think I made an allusion to this before that some of the demographics in our schools have shifted so that we include, you know, English language learners. Um, we have a majority still white teaching force, but our student demographics don't look like that anymore. And so I think there's been a push for culturally relevant teaching um, at the teacher ed level, which has been a real positive. But sometimes with beginning teachers learning about students who might be different from them in certain ways, they can end up, I don't know, maybe essentializing, like all English, learn English language learners need this, or all students from this kind of background learn best this way. And I think that um, that's certainly not the point of teaching culturally relevant teaching, but it's this um, kind of understanding of broadening our, our awareness of the kinds of students we're serving, but also not labeling them, you know, essentializing them. Um, and that is a hard thing to do because we are helping students sometimes encounter difference for their first time when they get into schools that, you know, they might have one kind of school that serves, you know, a majority Hispanic population and that school is going to have maybe some different needs and issues than a school that has students who are at risk for, um, you know, behavioral issues. So I think, um, I think that we just need to be aware that we used to um, do things like take students on a one-day field trip to um, Kansas City Public Schools, and it ended up being more of a 
we see difference and it's just, uh, okay, we acknowledge difference for six hours that we're here, but then we go back to a place where we don't have difference. Um, and so that's very problematic. And so we've tried to have our beginning teachers really understand that when they're going to be in a school that's different maybe from the one that they grew up in or the one that is, you know, mirroring their experience, there's going to be a learning process over time. It's not just a one day I see difference and I, I understand it. So uh, as I hear what you're saying and I'm synthesizing with what I know, I'm going to rephrase it just so that I can see if this is how I'm reading it. Uh, to me, I mean, you didn't, you, I didn't, I don't think I found the word differentiation in this paper anywhere, but, but as I'm reading it, it sounds like if we do not help pre-service teachers bridge that gap between uh, application and awareness, then we are creating difficulties for their ability to differentiate the complexities, uh, I'm sorry, the complexities of a diverse classroom. Yes, you, I think that's, that's exactly right. I think we have to actually have beginning teachers not just read about these things, read about and be a, that's what we call awareness, kind of like, oh, I understand it because I'm aware of all these things. But if they can't enact things like differentiating curriculum, working with different kinds of student groups, we don't really know if they're going to be effective in the classroom. So teaching is really not just a sit at your desk and do your own thing and theorize. And I think that that's part of it, too, is that higher ed is comfortable doing that. So we, in teacher ed, in an applied field, have another job to do, not just theorize and produce you know, research, but actually help the beginning teachers see what that looks like when they go into their teaching position. What you were saying, uh, you know, teachers have got to get into it. We've got to solve these problems. We've got to be active. And uh, one of the kind of sub recurring themes of this podcast is responsive teaching, which means you've got to go out in your classroom, figure out what where your kids are and what they're doing, and then respond to that. And, and, and so if you go in with a set plan of, hey, this is what I planned and this is what we're going to do, uh, you miss out an opportunity to respond to those kids. And that is so difficult to do. Uh, I can imagine it is a challenging thing to try to instill in any teacher education program. You really hit on this myth of what teaching is. So we get a lot of people who apply to be in our programs who write essays about the myth, you know, endorsing this myth of standing in front of students, being the one in control, giving lessons, and they still want that teacher as authority while they are encountering that teaching really isn't that. This, in fact, a lot of this resonated with me. There was a, a paragraph that I found, it was early on, uh, you, you kind of set some stage about philosophical necessities for this uh, survey this research in the first place and there was this one paragraph that I absolutely loved because it resonated with me and my uh, science teacher education experience uh, the paragraph uh, we maintain that recent scholarship supports the importance of subject specific methods and I have got to say that, that that is consistent with my experience my uh, master's degree is in uh, master of art of teaching in secondary science education it was very focused on science education. Uh, and uh, most of my classes were uh, basically content pedagogy. Um, and and uh, 
especially in relation to constructivist and social constructivist theories of learning and theories that apply to both learning to teach and the learning of teacher candidates' pupils. Teachers must understand their subject matter both as disciplinary ad adepts and as their students experience it. And that is, that's two diverging views on that content. Um, and so uh, that is that was richly part of my program as uh, learning to be a science teacher. And then we go down and we find that uh, specific methods courses for English, uh, though they've expanded since 20 years ago, they're still a minority part of the teacher education programs. Right. So that's a difference between my experience with a science-focused right. program and, and an ELA program. And so I thought that that, that just filled me with joy as I read it. This, this is philosophically aligned with how I saw my teacher education okay. program. And I think that that really speaks to within any discipline, we want our both our pre-service teachers and our students in the K through 12 classroom to be almost apprentices, learning the discipline, being being aware of what are the you know models and formulas that guide our thinking in this discipline and too often now I think there's this generalist approach that kind of assumes we can just be outside of a discipline we can have these general models but that doesn't really work when you're an apprentice view and you have to learn the nuances of a subject area so we would love it if we had a majority English teacher ed courses but with the, all of the new foci, I think with technology, with English language learners, with standards, sometimes there is a tendency in teacher ed now to include all of that through creating all these separate modules or courses. And then it becomes like we're trying to cover a terrain that is way too big and that we can't possibly really immerse ourselves in the becoming expert. It sounds like a lot of this is hinging on if, if we're going to take this apprenticeship view of teacher preparation, that uh, it's, the field experiences are really, really, really important. They're, they're some of that need to um, be reinforced and in some cases expanded. But as I look at some of the data that you collected, especially in some of the alternative certification programs, there 25% of the responding alternative certification programs had zero field experience before student teaching. And I know that Kansas uh, just announced a new alternative um, teacher certification program. Uh, the news came out there even uh, just a few days ago, the State Board of Education is approving this pilot program for accelerated teaching licenses. And so you can get somebody who's teaching in a in their own classroom by themselves in just a semester, I think it was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it sounds... Uh, and so they're not going to have this. They're not going to have this apprenticeship situation. Okay. Uh, so did you see any patterns in uh, in the national programs for... Can you just can you comment on that? On that I, I think that that trend is one that's very common and it really speaks to the location and the professionalization of teaching in the U.S. society. So we found that as we looked at um, how the U.S. considers teaching, it's always been a fairly lowly profession with a lot of controversy over the routes and the perceived role of what does it mean to be a teacher? Does it mean to be a caregiver? Does it mean to have a body of expertise? I think there's been debates, you know, even even before teacher ed was included in the four-year institutions. Um, teaching was 
considered something that, you know, often women did and went through a two-year normal school to receive their education. So there's a history that has framed what teaching is, and I think that that still influences the reason why these, um, you know, these pilots can happen today. And and there's also the the demand by the consumer. So there's oftentimes people who say, oh, I want to be a teacher, and they've had a career and they hope that their cachet of life experience and work experience can translate then into an easy route into teaching. And so I think just that alone suggests that teaching is not really considered the same kind of profession with the body of knowledge that we know as educators is needed, but is really hard to convince those outside of education that it's needed. Um, so we, we really continue to fight an uphill battle, I think, in teacher ed to maintain a focus on a curriculum and, and field experiences that promote that apprentice view um, because, you know, these programs, these initiatives keep happening where, you know, teaching, the route to teaching becomes smaller and smaller. There's programs like Teach for America, for example, which, you know, recruit out of um, Ivy League schools and take people and they do their two-year stint as mostly a resume builder. And um, it's really those things that are considered legitimate, but that really continue to deprofessionalize teaching. And really bring about some alarmingly high turnover rates, which then ultimately leads us right back into the teacher shortage that they were intended to, to, to resolve in the first place. Right. It looked like the majority of the data that was collected during the course of this of this uh, of this broad-reaching survey, was uh, self-reported. Is that a, is that a fair statement? I would say that that's self-reported, and um, we tried to, I guess you call it, triangulate the data by having the survey, the syllabi collection, and then the focus groups. Um, but we also felt like the self-report was an important feature of hearing from English teacher educators themselves. Uh, sure, and so there, there's a lot of value in getting to hear directly from the folks who are doing the work. Uh, but did you do you consider there to be any um, shortcomings or maybe any uh, any illusions or spurious patterns that may have arisen that, because? Yeah, I think it's always a issue in studying teaching and the practice of teaching to think about what what is thought to have been done and then what really happens. So one possible follow up for this study could be actually going more into the classrooms and looking at what are pre-service teachers doing and how are their struggles manifested in the schools. Do these um, reports from English teacher educators really mirror the challenges that the pre-service teachers and beginning teachers are, are having? Uh, because there, I know there were several spots throughout the course of the report where there were uh, a number of programs report. Yes, we do this, and it is across the program. And so we don't. There's no one single place. This is just a thing that happens integrated, and that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, and so, is there? Do you have thoughts or recommendations, perhaps, to uh, folks who are looking to do some of this follow-up research for how do we measure uh, is, uh, the efficacy of these programs? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and we are working actually on a paper still from this data that um, we call commitments to change. And we actually try to create a commitment measure. So it would, it, it would include the philosophy of the faculty members, the, the mission of that program, and then what kind of time and resource is actually put into that. So if your program has a commitment to preparing beginning teachers to work with English language learners, do you have 
a real commitment in terms of time, resources? Do you have a, a course on that? Do you have a mission that includes that? Do you place beginning teachers in schools and field placements that actually emphasize working with English language learners? And so we're trying to see if there is a actual equation that can predict this um, commitment measure. Um, and I think that all programs cannot be committed to everything. So you might have one program that really emphasizes technology integration in the classroom. And that has to be highlighted because, as we know, we, we can't really have a program that does all things and does all things well. So I think it would be important for um, all teacher education programs to look at what are they committed to and how do they really manifest that commitment in their program. Uh, one thing, I, what I appreciate is hearing about this uh, current research that you are uh, working on is that one of the things that we've appreciated in the past is that we like it in, in papers, whether they be education or science, when we find new ways to measure something. Mm -hmm. We just think that that's elegant. And the fact that you are trying to create a way to measure a program's priorities with this uh, commitment mechanism, uh, I think is, is exciting. And I look forward to reading that just because new ways to measure stuff is cool. Okay. Uh, so that well, sounds really interesting to me. I will send that to you. That w That's not quite finished yet. But um, I think one thing with English teacher ed is that we use so many anecdotes and we our data collection is very focused on interviewing that for our study to have any kind of quantitative aspect was really different and we appreciated just the very basic, you know, uh, stats that we used in the paper that you read, but we hope to use something that can create that elegant formula for looking at commitments. Um, and that's something very different in our field. This resonates for me because I am basically sitting in a professional development event that helps me do my job better because I am a teacher prep person. And even though I'm not ELA, there's a lot of overlap and you've given me a lot to think about. Uh, but many of our listeners are classroom K-12 teachers. And so they, they are likely thinking to themselves, I don't have control over my own teacher prep program or what uh, my incoming young colleagues uh, will have. So. For somebody, for a, a practicing ELA teacher in a classroom in a department right now, what can they do to try to address maybe some of the some of the gaps in whatever the training may have been in the past, or to try and be more ready for uh, what folks are going to have as they are hired into their departments? What should classroom teachers do to be responsive to what's happening in ELA teacher prep programs right now? Well, first of all, I want to say that classroom teachers who mentor beginning teachers who host pre-service teachers are an essential piece of the teacher education mission and so we think highly of them and thank them for all of their work that they do with beginning teachers and really I see them as the ones who are often the most adept at creating this nuance between theory and practice so they are the ones who can see how things that beginning teachers learn in their teacher ed programs translate to the field and often they're the mentors who beginning teachers look to in how to navigate those tensions and um, they're on the ground they understand what con context you know they're in and so to be those mentors who can you know sort of carefully guide beginning teachers to understand that there's maybe not one answer, but it could look like this or it could look like that. I think that's what we would value and that's what I guess I would say is that to keep doing that, to, to not be afraid to highlight those tensions for beginning teachers because 
beginning teachers want to see teaching as a profession. They don't want to go in and see it just as a script that's given to them. And often our teachers who who go into districts where there is sort of a, a not an emphasis on their professional decision making end up really um, kind of dismayed that they don't have more power in the classroom. And so for, you know, practicing ELA teachers to highlight what is the agency they have in their own classroom. That's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we are interested in learning more, we read some of the peer-reviewed literature, but you have a book out now, uh, Secondary English Teacher Education in the United States. So if there are listeners who are thinking, I want to know more about this, what, uh, what kind of additional information can they find in the full book? Um, they can find um, a kind of an expanded chapter on each of the what I call the post-1995 themes or the new areas of focus. So there's one on teaching literacy, there's one on technology, one on standards, one on changing field experiences. Um, and so they can really go more in-depth with that. The final chapter also is kind of alluding to this idea of commitments to change and how we as a field can be committed to our the priorities that we have while also working alongside some of the external mandates like common core standards and um, ed tpa which is a final teaching portfolio so some of those external mandates have really been what has caused the field to shift but we want to really be sure that we are also driving the shifts ourselves and not just adhering to external mandates. And so I think we discuss that more in depth in the book. Now we do other stuff. For our content discussion this week, we're kind of, uh, taking a uh, unusual path away from the public education system. Uh, we're talking about, the, the article is called Mastery Learning, How Is It Helpful? An Analytical Review, which sounds like it could be applied in any education system. And in this particular, this particular publication was published in the Advanced Medical Education Practices Journal because it is about mastery learning as applied to teaching pre-service, as you will, surgeons. I was saying, and I don't even think they were pre-service. This was they were already performing surgeries in some cases. So this is like late stage surgeon training. And uh, mastery is important up there because if you don't have mastery understanding of what you're doing, you kill people. So it's yeah. pretty important that they get it right. Yeah, the cost of imperfections are very high in that domain. Yeah. And this is applicable to folks who are trying to find ways to implement standards-based grading, or some of the other techniques where we, we place high expectations on students and we emphasize uh, revision and reattempt and uh, attainment of competency standards as opposed to accrual of points or um, other assessment procedures. Sure. This, reading this paper was actually enjoyable for me because uh, I attempt to employ a mastery uh, assessment strategy in my classrooms. So uh, I like seeing what, 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 I, what, overlapped with what they're doing uh, and what contrasted with what I'm doing uh, in terms of a surgeons versus a high school classroom setting. But what I think to start, regardless of what setting you're working in, we need to discuss what is mastery. Uh, and in terms of this context, and the definition is one that I'm comfortable with, is that uh, mastery learning involves uh, typically involves reaching proficiency on particular tasks, 
heavy feedback and deliberative practice. I think that, uh, though pithy, does does kind of uh, deal with the major pillars of mastery learning. And so really what they were examining in this paper was, okay, we all want all of our students to be masters of every individual skill that we're practicing or every piece of content we may have. But what's influencing how successful we might be in achieving those sort of mastery expectations, uh, both contrasted with some of the other ways of running a classroom and running your assessment, but also contrasted with the different ways that we can go about attempting to implement mastery expectations, because that's a broad umbrella that can mean a number of different things. And so they identified some uh, some important variables that need to be considered and that can influence how successful a mastery classroom might be or a mastery or a mastery training session might be in achieving those expectations across all of your students. And they listed early on the two variables that have the most influence are the way that the task is practiced, so either whole task practice or uh, isolated uh, sequential order of practice in parts. And number two is the way that the practice sessions are distributed, either mass practice or distributed practice is what they said. So if, if those variables matter, they matter in what ways? And so we can start first with uh, whole task practice or partial part practice sequentially accomplished uh, because that really, to my mind, sounds like exploring some larger space so that the transferable idea into the high school setting might be some sort of uh, PBL or some sort of project, some sort of inquiry experience, or some sort of larger phenomenon exploration that we spend some time considering and discussing and navigating versus breaking that into a linear sequence of Monday we talk about X and Tuesday we talk about Y, and by the end of the week we will have circumnavigated the entire topic and come to the end. So what I hear from that is we can compare that to exploring larger spaces versus sequentially progressing through a more linear series of steps. Exploring whole problems leads to greater competencies. And that is because exploring whole problems is not a linear process. They actually, when it comes to the sequencing of how, how they teach these skills, they actually broke it down into three different ways. One, do the whole thing. Two, do each part of the thing discreetly, but in order. And three, do each part in shuffled orders. And what they found is that deconstructing a procedure into smaller parts and mastering each part does not contribute to mastering the whole of a complex shifting procedure. Because live surgeries involve variability and errors, uh, randomized mixed practice simulations, better prepared surgeons, because surgeons do not get to conduct surgeries in a sequential manner. Distributed practice yield greater retention than mass practice uh, of one part of the surgery over and over and over again, uh, as opposed to interleaving the different parts of that surgery. This actually resonates with something personal for me. I have some martial arts experience, and uh, in, in many of these martial arts, there's this axiom, train how you fight. And so this, if we want to perform at a certain level, we need to prepare ourselves for the complexities of that performance. And since surgeries are complex and unpredictable, we need to practice in a complex and unpredictable way. And so I think what's of note is mastery learning pairs well with that mixed, sequen mixed sequence because we have no earthly idea how many repetitions it's going to take for you to see a meaningful number of variations in that particular scenario. And so it compares to a common curricular choice is we need to do a measurement unit before we do anything else. 
But if students have that small chunk of experience in the classroom outside and independent of the larger problems, then they don't have the opportunity to struggle or make meaning with that. And so I can, in five attempts, execute a measurement procedure appropriately, but I don't have any of the context or any of the rest of the stress that comes with trying to decide to do that in the right moment, in the right way, and in the correct relation to the rest of the other things that are going on in an authentic setting. And so what's appropriate is if I'm going to be doing whole problems and make relatively unpredictable mistakes and experience relatively unpredictable combinations of struggles and challenges and problems, then I need to have the freedom to experience that enough times that I can develop a mastery experience within that sphere. And that's going to be different from person to person because their experiences are necessarily going to be different when they're experiencing larger, more freeform problems. So though I uh, embrace mastery learning, I do not give partial credit on my questions. They either crush the question and get credit for it or they don't. Uh, there's, there's no half points uh, in Mr. Woodruff's classroom. Um, so I, I really resonate appreciate, and appreciate uh, this mastery model. Um, there are some things in here that currently don't jive with my practice that I need to consider about moving forward about what my classroom will look like based on these implications. Something that I'm considering is that uh, this idea that mastery involves periods of skill regression, which require faith that mastery will be reached and perseverance through those periods of regression. So the students need to, again, I'm going to evoke, have to have a growth mindset uh, in order to go through this. Because the cost is this, overconfidence and complacency in the absence of new challenges contributes to the periods of regression. Expert level feedback and adding unknown factors of additional complexity to practice and perseverance in the face of those setbacks reduces the effect of the regression periods. Adding complications to the simulation increases retention but cessation of simulation training soon after the student reaches proficiency reduces retention. So if you practice until they get it and then move on without sprinkling in added complexities, they, they lose it quicker. So that has implications for pacing in a classroom. And it has implications for uh, sprinkling complexity, unknown complexity in a classroom. And it has implications for how I'm assessing them. If I am not assessing them in novel ways, and currently I am not, every part of my assessments are predictable from, you know, as soon as the a couple weeks into school, when my kids get my pattern. They are not being challenged in new ways. So I need to consider how are my assessments becoming stagnant and stale in a way that promotes drop-off. I'm getting them there, but I'm, I'm not really doing anything to keep them there, which is something that I need to think about going forward. And I like that you brought that up because this was one of the most interesting pieces that gave me pause as I was reading through the paper was that waveform that is the true learning curve. Because I think that both you and I would have said, yes, of course, students are going to have some high days and some low days. I don't think that that is actually a thoughtful... Um, revision of our view of reality, but to actually describe it, internalize that that learning curve has a waveform and that some of our choices impact the shape of that waveform is not something that I had thought about before. We have some control and agency over that. And the actual wording of the paper says that the, if we cease training, while the training is in the steep part of the learning curve, so they're, they're taking in that feedback, they're making interesting mistakes and they're making big gains and they're really growing. If we stop in the middle of that, 
far less retention is the word choice in the paper. So that really matters. We cannot just get it until they're finally over the hump. Great, we can move on because I got a lot of other things to do because they will lose all of it, which can go to explain some of that experience of we're in April and they did everything well, but there's nothing that we can do right now. Why aren't we feeling like we're getting better? And some of that early termination can explain some of that. The second variable that mattered was whether or not we're going to do mass practice or distributed practice. And this one was another unequivocal decision. Distributed practice is better. And not only is it better holistically, but it is most pronounced in its advantage when you are testing their mastery immediately after the experience. So if we do 100 problems of practice and then test you on whether or not you can do those problems, you are most at a disadvantage at that moment than you are if there's any time given afterwards. So you should space out the assessment in addition to the discrete practice experiences. The greatest advantage in distributed practice is the retention of skills. So distributed practice group had better retention of skills, which is one of the key indicators of mastery. You have not mastered something if you can only do it today, but not tomorrow. It goes back to one of those common uh, colloquialisms. I think it comes from the military. You practice something not until you can do it well, but until you can't do it poorly. I learned that in an orchestral context. Yeah, it's a very common, it's a very common saying. So let's review. Mastery teaching should be considered because it improves student development. More instruction regarding how mastery teaching works should be available. And that's particularly tough because to this point, we have made a distinction between mastery learning and standards-based grading, but there's going to be a lot of overlap in that. And it's probably merits its own episode to talk about standards-based grading. Well, there's probably research about it we haven't read yet. No, I'm certain that that's true. Uh, so mastery learning is a distinct but heavily overlapped idea with some of the other practices that you may be familiar with. Massed practice is less effective than random ordered distrib distributed practice. So use random ordered distributed practice in your classroom. Uh, and moving on as soon as students reach mastery, is less effective than continued practice with incrementally adding complexities. Uh, and finally, the one that resonates the most for me is train how you fight. If you expect students to incorporate and respond to new ideas, then your assessments need to have uh, responsive new ideas in them. And that's something that could you even spend its own episode talking about, because if I'm going to try to prepare students, you need to go consider big ideas, and it's hard, and it's frustrating, and it takes prolonged investment, but then I'm going to assess you on these surface-level, surface-level, superfluous, burdensome assessments, then I'm basically saying, go do that, but I'm not going to give you any incentive to spend that time developing that mastery. And so there's a lot of complexity baked in there about, yes, you need to have distributed practice, and yes, you need to consider whole problems and a number of whole problems so you can navigate the various unique complexities and eccentricities of each of those problems. But then how do we measure that in a meaningful way and in a way that's satisfying and challenging every time is, is a hard question. And each teacher's going to have to find their own answer to that question. But we need to seek those answers because at the end of the day, teachers using mastery learning develop more positive attitudes toward teaching, have higher expectations for students, and take greater personal responsibility for learning outcomes. And I think that we all want that for ourselves. That's something that is desirable for us as teachers. Let's go get it.
This is better with all of you. Time for peer review. We've got a little bit to talk about, but our turnaround was a little strange. But we have some big changes that I think are worth pointing out as well. Uh, we do have some response. Last month's episode was prompted by a professional, and he has responded. Justin Coffey, who is an education consultant out in Western Kansas, gave us some comments that I think are worth discussing and considering. Uh, one of the things that he said is that uh, he acknowledges that we as humans do, do not all have the same brain development. Therefore, we do, and we don't have the same experiences. So we do need to differentiate in order to meet the diverse needs of our students. What he pointed out was that he finds considerable fault with the system that is wrought at large and how it can be responsive to our individual students. And a lot of that philosophy resonates with me. I agree that we should have the freedom, the agency at the district and the building and the teacher level to be responsive to what our students need moment to moment. Uh, but I'm not completely sure that I understand how the redesign efforts align with those priorities and with the research at large and its guidance on how that should happen. I'm just I'm just truly ignorant on some of that. And so his comments really prompted me to have a desire to know more about how the redesign is different from the current system and what of that is intrinsic to the individual teachers and administrators and what they can do in both systems be more responsive to their individual students. What else has happened uh, since our last episode? Oh man, it's been a heck of a, a heck of a month for us. First off, we heard some new theme music last month and this month. Uh, we are sound. I'm pretty excited. Rather than just bar background noise nonsense, we've got some actual theme music rocking on now. Yeah, this theme music was written by Dee Dee Riot, uh, and he is a DJ. And you can, uh, if you liked this music and would like to hear more, you can check out Dee Dee Riot's SoundCloud page uh, and hear more of this uh, digital dreamscape, which happens to be music that I like to listen to. Yeah, it's enthusiastic. It's uh, accentuates the spirit of discovery that I think is consistent with what we want to be doing here because I love discovering new things about my profession and I feel like that music really fits with my attitude of this is great, let's go do it. I like to cheer about education discussions and so the cheers really get to me. We're also excited to report we have a new home. So if you listen on SoundCloud, we now have a place that is hospitable and accommodating and would be ready to host your needs to look up our citations and provide your own comments. We have a brand new website, twopintplc.com, and it is awesome. Uh, and what's a, what we appreciate about this website, not only does it have all the episodes in an easy-to-find fashion and it gives you information about our guests, there are a highly supported comment section. So if you want to give us feedback, or if you want to find the articles that we're talking about, they are right there, easy for you, because uh, we need you to put the C in PLC. It really looks excellent, and we appreciate all the expertise that has been offered to us from 4Lights Web Development. I didn't like any of that. So how was the beer? This was a surprisingly complex drink for me. I experienced a lot of the citrus and fruity notes. Uh, I don't typically enjoy pale ales, but this one, this one went down easy. I put down the first glass in record time. It's a really easy to drink beer. I am 
feeling incredible disequilibrium about this beer. I do not like it. I cannot stop drinking it. <laughs> uh, I I like the taste. It, this I knew this as soon as like I put the first sip in my mouth. I like the taste, and I do not like the aftertaste. And so once I swallow, it begs for me to put more of it in my mouth. And uh, so uh, from a marketing perspective and from a craftsmanship perspe- perspective, well done. Um, and uh, I will just, with great disequilibrium, finish my glass. Uh, yeah, I really like the the complexity of the notes. I don't typically like a pale ale drink in general, and it definitely has the aftertaste of a typical pale ale. So if that's something you find desirable, uh, if you like saisons uh, in general, this is going to be an excellent representation of what that should taste like. Uh, I know that it's not necessarily either one of your or my um, favorite as far as variety goes, but I think this is a well-executed example of that particular variety, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, We're about to head out now, but I just want to say that I have appreciated all the philosophical and uh, complex practice discussions I've had with my principal, Carrie Lane. If you are listening to this episode, I really appreciate what you're doing for me every day. Thank you. Administrators, you've got a complex job. Administrators, support personnel, consultants. If you're listening and considering and thinking and trying to better support teachers, Give us a shout. Let us know what we can do to better support you because it's important work and your teachers need you. Discuss research. And struggle well.